John chapter 6, verse 35 to 47. Yeah. Join me in this reading. This is the word of our Lord. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourself. No one come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father, comes to me not that anyone has seen the father except he who is from god he has seen the father truly truly i say to you whoever believes has eternal life Amen. thank you Eunice. Good morning everybody for those of you that um don't know me, my name's Andrew, and um, it's my pleasure to be able to pastor here at One Hope. Um, yeah, and as we gather in a time like this, I'm, I'm reminded that, um, you know, I, uh, I feel in myself when I hear all of the, um, the, the struggles and the frustrations with changes, and I'm reminded that we live in a world full of changes, but we serve and change less God, a God that, um, that we can find in the Word that is always to be found, is always close and is always with us. So as we worship together this morning, as we listen to the Word and as we've already worshipped, let's remember that He's a living God and it's good to worship Him wherever we are, wherever you find yourself. You know, we're um, wandering through our, our theme of uniquely reformed and uh, we've got it up there on the little shadow box there looking at reformed doctrine and, and practice um, and, and talking about reformed distinctives which is really important it's really for us to understand it's really important for us to be able to understand but what's more important for us to understand is that this is not about reform this is about God this is about the God of the Bible. And so it's about us understanding that our reform doctrine, our reform practice, what makes us unique, is not what gives us an identity here on earth. It's not what gives us any sense of pride, but it's something that helps us to grow closer to the heart of God, to understand the heart of God. So I want that to be the theme in which we listen to some of these messages, that there are unique understandings and unique ways we express 
But they're about God. They're about the King of Kings. They're about the Lord of Lords. And they're about drawing us closer to Him and living for Him. So we've been looking at that and it's good to look at that, like I said. And we spoke about reform being a denomination. We had a little bit of a look at denominations. And then we began to look at the five points of Calvinism. And, and we had a little bit of a jaunt through history there to see how that might have happened, or how that, how that did happen, how it came about. And we had that acrostic. Remember the tulip, the, um, the flower, the tulip acrostic or, uh, that helps us remember those five points. And they were, you know, T is total depravity, U is unconditional election, L is limited atonement, I is irresistible grace, and P is perseverance of the saints. And there's some pretty old language there, and, and we discovered too that there are probably different ways to be able to say that, to help us understand that. And I shared a couple of those, and I'm sure if you looked it up online, you'd see some different ways to be able to understand it. Perhaps to make it a little bit, well, easy is not the right word, but to help, help, it, help us to understand it more in our context. We learned that there might be better terms. And we'll see that as we go. And in fact, listen today and you'll hear a few different ways that I express what we're talking about today. We started by looking at T, and you might remember two weeks ago I spoke on total depravity. Not that we're totally wicked and can't do a thing right and never do a thing right, never do anything good, but that our whole being is corrupted by sin. That, that we're born into a, a, sin, a, a nature of sin in the world and in our whole being is corrupted by sin. And our human nature and our, our inclination is to sin. Which in effect means that if our inclination is to sin, we can't save ourselves from the thing that's captured us, from the thing that, that possesses us, from sin. And nor will we do that, because we don't want to. But what we discovered is how good is it that God saves us despite that. Despite the fact that, that we can't save ourselves, despite the fact that we don't want to and we won't save ourselves, that didn't stop God from sending His Son Jesus. And we looked at where Paul says in Romans 5 that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that to me is still one of my favourite verses that, that reminds me that, that while I was rejecting God, He sent His Son Jesus to die for us. Isn't that good news? That's great news. But today I'm going to mess with or, or trample on our little tulip uh, a little bit by changing the order. I'm going to mess it around a little bit. And today we're going to be looking at the eye. So we're going to jump straight down to the eye. Irresistible grace. And why am I doing that? Well, in some ways it follows a little bit better. It follows on a little better from total depravity. Because this, if you like, is how God wins when he's up against total depravity. How does God save people if they're stubborn? If their hearts are not willing to come or their hearts are not willing to respond? Well, the answer is God's unstoppable grace changes your heart, changes your mind, your will and your desires. His grace gives us a new heart, a new will and a new life. It's His doing, and that's the important thing we need to understand here, that His grace, this unstoppable grace, gives you a new heart, a new will, and a new life. You know, and it says in that scripture in Ezekiel chapter 36, and I think we've got a slide for that to you, and it says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, 
and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my, my rules. Notice who the main character is in that scripture. Notice who the main actor, the only actor is. It's God, isn't it? I will do this. I will put my spirit. I will cause you. I will make you soft. And this is really important for us to understand. A couple of stories before we go any further. And some of you might remember I've told, um, told you about a few people that I know um, before. And I just want to tell you about two, two guys that I know that um, I've had the, the pleasure to be involved with over, um, over my, in my work. And particularly these two people that I was working with, Youth With A Mission, two people that... Um, I had the pleasure of knowing. One is an, old, an older guy, a friend of mine called Ed. Ed was, um, many, many years ago, as a young 20-year-old or as a young 18-year-old, I can't remember exactly how old he was, he lived in Canada. He now lives in the Netherlands. He lived in Canada, and his life's work was the Satanist movement. He was a diehard atheist. In fact, he had joined the Satanist uh, local coven, and he had risen up in the ranks and he had become the head of the Satanist movement, the Satanist church, if you like, they called it there, in Canada. This was a man who was all out working against God and did not want to hear about God and did not want to know God. One Sunday, he found himself walking past the church and irresistibly, and this is the language he uses, he went into the church and he met someone there and he heard a message. Long story short, he ended up coming to the Lord. And he was the first to say, I was not looking for it. There was nothing I could do to stop being drawn in to a relationship with God, to stop confessing Christ as my Lord and Saviour. Another friend of mine, another guy I knew, his name's Richard. We met Richard in Amsterdam. Richard was a, um, a, an Olympian. But not just a normal Olympian, he wasn't, and, and not a Paralympian. He was um, head of the uh, Gay Olympics movement in the Netherlands, and the Netherlands were, were about to host the Gay Olympics. They'd been in New York or something, and he was part of organising the hosting. Um, he was in um, homosexual relationships, he was uh, fully into that lifestyle. And he tells a story that one Sunday morning, he was in um, Amsterdam, and as some of you might know, on a Sunday morning, Holland is pretty quiet because everything's shut. Some of us like that idea, some of us don't like that idea so much. And he was walking past this little church, and he was drawn to go in because he heard something going on in there. And he went in there, and he found it, he says, in his, he found it terribly boring. But after the service, two old ladies came up and talked to him and asked him all sorts of questions. You know how that happens when you go to a new place and the two ladies that have been there forever uh, come up and, and, you know, they want to know all about you. And he couldn't get away. And he said, I couldn't wait to get away. And finally I extracted myself from them and I got away. And I thought, oh, I'll never do that again. He said the following Sunday morning he woke up and he was drawn to go straight back to that church. And he became a Christian. Um, he's actually married now with a few kids and ministers in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, to the people on the streets there. He also says, there was nothing I was doing looking for God. It was all God. It was irresistible. There was nothing I could do. Neither of these guys took credit for it. 
It was all God and all the work of the Holy Spirit. The reason I want to look at this before we go on to unconditional election and limited atonement, etc. And, and those things can be hard for us to grasp and, and we will wrestle with them a little bit as well. Is this. The reason I wanted to do this first is this. Most Christians, like my friends there, most Christians have a conscious, personal experience of irresistible grace. That it was God's sovereign work. Even if that's not what they've called it, even if, if you've not called it that or if you've not heard it, most people have a, a Christians have a conscious personal experience of God's irresistible grace. You rarely meet Christians who want to take credit for their own conversion. There's something about receiving this grace in our heart that makes us want to give glory to God, that, that makes us want to attribute it to God and not to ourselves, isn't it? Imagine if you asked a believer what he or she would say to Jesus at judgment. When Jesus says this, Why did you believe in me when you heard the gospel, but your friends didn't when they heard it? Well, not many of us would say, well, because I was wiser. I was smarter or I was a little more spiritual than my friends. Or, I was a less sinful person than them or... You know, I was better trained. I actually went to lots of sermons on this sort of stuff and read lots of stuff. And, and actually, I'm humbler. Most of us know that it was God. That it's all God. And most of us would say things like, Therefore, the grace of God go I. We know that, don't we? In other words, we know intuitively that God's grace was a decisive thing in our conversion. This helps us, to some degree, begin to understand the concept of irresistible grace. John Piper said this, Irresistible grace points to the sovereign work of God to overcome the rebellion of our heart and bring us to faith in Christ so that we can be saved. If the doctrine of total depravity is true... Salvation is not possible without the reality of irresistible grace. Think about that line in the middle there for a minute. If the doctrine of total depravity is true, if I am not going to do anything and I will not do anything to respond to God, then salvation is not possible without the reality of irresistible grace. If we are dead in our sins and unable to submit to God because of our rebellious nature, then we will never believe in Christ unless God overcomes our rebellion. So then, does this mean that God drags people kicking and screaming into heaven? You know, I don't want it, I'm never going to look for it, and God has to drag me, or you, or, or someone, kicking and screaming to heaven. Or does it perhaps mean that we can never, um, or we can't resist God's move towards us, His call uh, to overcome or that His grace is incapable of being resisted. Like, it, it, His grace comes to us and we cannot resist it. Well, that doesn't mean that either. We are capable of resisting God's grace, and we often do. The idea, however, is that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome our natural resistance. You're beginning to see that sometimes the word irresistible isn't always the best way to understand it, is it? That 
I can resist. I can at times resist, and I do resist God's grace, and we all do. But the idea behind irresistible grace is that God's grace is so powerful that it has the capacity to overcome that resistance. Our text in, in verse 44, and, and just have a look at that again, if you've got your Bibles open, and, and if not, it'll be on the screen, where Jesus says, No one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. He says the Father draws us. That it's God's work and it's God's power. Now you might think that draw is a bit of a, a weak word. That there's a bit of a weak meaning like that. You know, like, I don't know, I, I caught myself thinking the same thing. It's a bit of a weak meaning. So I had a little bit of a look into that. And, couldn't, <clears throat> and, and some would say, uh, some commentators will say, well actually, you know, it's, it's, it, it says draw but it means compel. You know, it, it, it means force. It has a sense of force behind us that it compelled and pushed and uh, maybe. It might not be that hard, but it also isn't soft like, you know, cajole or entice or attract. Like, you know, it's also not like, well, okay, you have all the info, I've, I've invited you, and, and I've reminded you again to RSVP. You know how that happens when you get invited to something and then you just totally forget, and someone says, well, you haven't RSVP'd yet. It's not like God comes back and says, yeah, you haven't RSVP'd yet, I've, I've offered you my grace, and then I haven't heard anything, and I'm really hoping you respond because it's going to be so good, it's going to be great. And here's my grace now, it's up to you. It, it's not that either. It's not... A weak draw and it's not a, a forced or compelled. Think a little bit more of the word draw. Think of, a, think, use the, think of the example of when someone draws water out of a well. You know how we call that? We call that drawing water out of the well. The only way that, that water can come out of the well and the bucket drops in there is that there's someone up there relentlessly turning the handle, isn't there? There's someone turning it and the water without its own help is drawn out of the body of water the rest of the water that bucket is drawn out not cajoled it's not even compelled by good reasoning water you know it'd be a good idea if you come up now because you know it's going to be good for you up here or please you know i'm thirsty can you come up no it's drawn and that's the that's the way to think of that the word drawn the water doesn't contribute ultimately though it cannot resist to the person turning the handle who's drawing the water out of the well. So it is a good word, draw. It is pretty good, isn't it? You see, because of that powerful grace, God's work of salvation through Christ for us lands in our hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit in us. God, He changes the inclination of our will. So that where we were once unwilling, and maybe many times unwilling, or for a long time unwilling, where we were once unwilling to embrace grace, now we are. And that's how the Father draws us. We're irresistibly drawn into the kingdom. So maybe the term irresistible isn't the best way. And I said there might be a few other ways to think about it and understand it. 
Because in modern language, when you think of irresistible, you start thinking of romance and songs, don't you? You know, you think of all the songs that have irresistible or you're irresistible or the advertising on TV that this item is irresistible or, you know, this, this person, this guy, or this girl is irresistible or, you know, so the language in our modern day perhaps uh, romanticizes it a little bit or creates it a little bit that more me focused. So maybe it's not the best word. Some of the commentators would change that word to effectual. Let me explain. Effectual might be a better term. God's grace is effectual. It will have and does have the effect that it was intended to have on those it's given. Let me say that again. Effectual means that it will have, it has its effect, it has the desired effect on those that it was intended. I might word it like this. I was thinking about how would I, uh, I put it in words. When God's invincible grace sends his son to die for a sinner and his spirit to save that soul, the mission of redemption will definitely be accomplished. The grace of God has the effect that it was intended to have by God. Let me just say that again because I <clears throat> only made that up um, a little bit later. I didn't get it on the slides, but let me say it again. When God's invincible grace sends his son to die for a sinner and his spirit to save his soul, the mission of, redemp of redemption will be definitely accomplished. The grace of God has the effect that it was intended to have by God. So when you understand that effectual grace, it gives you a, bit of a better understanding. Our stubbornness is overcome. Our resistance is broken. But we're not broken like a defeated person. We're not sort of like led in a stupor, in some sort of drunken stupor, or just broken so that you know, we're just dragged as, as a wet rag. It not, it's not that picture. Our resistance isn't broken. That's not the picture we should have. It's us through the work of the Holy Spirit, finally aligning ourselves with God's already done work in and for us. R.C. Sproul says it like this, and, and he has a few comments on some of these areas, and this is, I like this. I now come to Christ because I want to come to Christ. But the reason I want to come to Christ is because Holy Spirit has already done a work in my soul. Have a look at that. Read that through again. It's on the screen. I now come to Christ because I want to come to Christ. But the reason that I want to come is because the Holy Spirit has already done a work in my soul. It's had the effect that God intended it to have. So it becomes irresistible and I want it. Paul says in Ephesians 2, and I want to read that, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. If you've got your Bibles, um, leave your finger in John and, and then jump over to have a look there. But I'm, I'm going to have it up on the screen for you as well. And Paul puts it really good and really encouraging. He says, And you were dead in, the trespasses, in trespasses and sin, in which you were once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, those are two really important words in there, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one can boast. For we is his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Paul puts it beautifully there, doesn't he? He says, it's all God's work. You know, you were dead, but God made you. He made you. He did it. He, he made you alive. He revived you, if you like. You were dead in your transgressions and you were lying there and, and he brought his, his paddles, this Holy Spirit paddles, and he, you know, shocked, and he made you alive. He did it. And it was an act of his grace. It's all God's work. So we're not dragged there. We actually want, we now run to Christ and embrace grace joyfully. And excitedly, just like the Ezekiel text said, we're now given soft hearts. Our hearts are changed from that rebellion by that grace, by his irresistible, effectual, whatever term works best for you. His grace softens us and changes our heart. Is this true for everyone then? You know, like... Ultimately, everyone will be overcome by that grace and everyone will be saved. And so, you know, does it really matter? Like, it's going to happen to everyone anyway? Well, no. And this is where Arminianism and Calvinism, if you do some reading, often part ways. And I do recommend do some reading around this because it's, it's not something you can capture in a sermon completely. But this is where they might part ways. So we have questions, why is it effectual for some and, and not for others? That seems a little unfair, right? It, it seems like, wow, okay, how does that work? Can God do that? Well, the short answer is yes. This is where many people struggle. Um, with this and some other doctrines, of course. And, and we struggle with this sense of justice and, and what's right and, and, what, and what's good. Because what we do is we... We, we define justice and we define what's right and good from our understanding, from, from our perspective of how it would look for us, how, how I would do it. Um, if I was God, fill in the rest of the sentence, if I was God and I looked at humanity, I would, I mean, I've often said if I was God and I looked at humanity, I might have just sent lightning you know, many times by now, but, but we, we have this, if I was God, I would, you know, and, or, if, or, you know, that's not the God I know. Have you ever heard that statement? That's not the God I know. Like there is a few different gods to know. Yeah, if, if I was God. You know, the reason we struggle so much is because we try to understand God. We try to understand it. We try to understand um, how he sees the world. We try to understand his work, which is infinitely greater than our lives through our understanding or our perception of what's right and wrong. And then we also have the old, well, you know, we're not that bad as humans, aren't we? We, we do try our best. When humans aren't that bad. And Tim Keller makes an interesting comment there. Um, and this is where he has a problem when we use that, well, we're not that bad. Um, 
and why he would suggest that perhaps we do need this overcoming power. He says, as long as we think we're not that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. You see, whilst we're fixed on how we view it, remember total depravity? Total depravity says, I won't. I won't see God right. I won't do it right. While we're fixed on the way that we view it, that grace and the way that God might operate makes no sense to us. And so we we struggle with some of these things. But remember too that we said that not many of us would dare to say that our gift of grace was because of us, because we were humbler or because we might have caused it or, or we might have done something to deserve to make it happen. None of us would really say that. So we know that God did something in us. We know that it was God. And that's effectual grace. It had the effect. <clears throat> so the Bible lays out this, this idea of a general call to humanity, that everyone, every human, uh, uh, has the opportunity to hear the gospel. So that call, they call it the general call, and then it lays out this sense of the effectual call, that the work of the Holy Spirit causes some, unaided by them, remember total depravity, some to respond to the call. And a lot of people might sort of say, well, that's, what's, the, what's the point of missions then? What's the point of preaching the gospel? What's the, why preach? And you often have a missions objection there. Well, we don't have insight into who God's grace causes to respond. But well, we do know that the Bible says that all need to hear. That's a general call. And we are, we, are, we are called to present the gospel, to preach the gospel. And so you could imagine it like this, that it's like the Holy Spirit empowers that general call that's gone out to all humanity. It activates that general call in some and becomes an effectual call, that irresistible grace. The resistance that we all as humans have to God's call is broken through by God in those He purposes to save. Think about that. Purposes to save? Question mark. We'll look at that as we go on further. Some of the other, um, other parts of uh, this deal, other parts of Chul might deal with that. We will have a look at that. But I need to say that it's true that we, that we find this hard, that we can find this hard. And it was true in Jesus' day as well. If we look a little bit broader than our text back in John, we'll see that. The book of John is just full of statements helping us to see and know who Jesus is. You know, he says things like, I and the Father, he and the Father are one. That, and, and in that language, in the original language, I, he was saying to the crowd, I and the Father are equal. That was shocking for them. To think that, here's this guy from Nazareth, did you read that in Jude? Well, hang on a second, this is the son of the... Wait a minute, we know where this guy came from. And then he goes and says that I and the Father are one, are equal. And that was shocking for them. It just didn't fit in their paradigm of thinking. And he goes on in John, he says that the Father and I were on a mission, that I'm doing what the Father wants, that, that, and that Jesus is God, and he's going to fulfill the task that the Father has set him. All of these things are, do not, don't fit into the That's not how they understand God. That's not how it works. And in our reading, we see him talking about being the bread of life. That once you eat this bread, you'll never hunger. Now, of course, we sort of see that as kind of perhaps picture language or something like that. But for them, bread um, was life. 
Bread was the, the, the if you like, the, the term for sustenance, for, for being able to live, for food. The, uh, and, and bread equaled life. And when they used the ter- this term eternal bread, they were talking about life in God, the way that God had rescued his people. You know, eternal bread was eternal life. And that was previously in all the experience, that was only a claim that God made. He was the only one that had eternal bread. And they had all that picture about how God gave them bread to eat, but that he was eternal bread. So imagine that that just blew their paradigm. Hang on a second, that's God can't even make that claim. You can't, Jesus, the son of the carpenter. And he goes on to say that he's come to do the Father's will in saving and drawing those who the Father has willed. Wait a minute. Who gave you the ticket to do that? Can you imagine the crowd? This confused and perplexed many as well as angered them a lot. Who does he think he is? Who does this guy think he is? So if you think... When we look at irresistible grace and, and future, if you think, gee, that's kind of hard, that doesn't fit in my paradigms. If you think this message is hard, if you think it's confusing, if you think it's unfair, you're not the first. Let's read a little bit further in, in John, um, chapters, uh, the same chapter, we're just going to read a little bit further, we'll be on the screen, uh, verses 60 to 71, just to give you a picture of how that worked. <clears throat> So Jesus has just said in between our reading and that, he's just said again, I'm the bread of life. Truly you say, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh, and he, he goes into all this language about eating him, and, and that if you, unless you do that, you, you're locked out from, from heaven. Then in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Basically what that means is, how can we hear this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Which they were going to do. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, and who it was who would betray him. And he said this, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to, allowed by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back. Remember, this is not just the twelve disciples. The disciples was a, a multitude of people that had, that had chased him across the... Before this, they had chased him across the water because he'd gone across the water after feeding the 5,000, and they thought, this is great. This guy is a miracle worker. After this, many of the disciples, because that was fun. This is not so fun anymore, this message. After that, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. We already see a picture there of the fact that you can be around Jesus and still not belong to Jesus. That's a whole other sermon. But you can see that 
that it did make sense. This whole sense of wait, how can how you know, if we do all these six hundred and thirty things right, we're going to heaven. How can how can that work? How how come it's all different now? And it's a little bit like me and, and like you when we hear some of these things and we try to think, well, how does that work? We've got to go back and have a look at grace and the way that God reaches out to us. And we see this in other places. It's not only John, but there are so many other places we see that it's God's work in our life, that, that God does a work in our life. Think of the text where Jesus says, those who have ears to hear. Who gave them those ears to hear? It was God. Think of where Jesus says, and he hardened their hearts. Who hardens their hearts? Or the, the four soils. We'll read about the different soils where the seed lands in different places and has different opportunities to grow. There is so much more study that you can do in the Word around this to help with understanding. And there's too much uh, to get into a sermon. And um, I encourage you to do some reading around that. I'm not going to stand here and say that I always totally understand. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sharing this message with you, but I'm not going to say that I totally understand why God chooses to deal this way with humanity always. In fact, I confess that I don't. I don't see things the way that God does. I don't have his perspective. I can't. And you can't. However, that doesn't stop you and I from trying to pin it down and, and um, trying to justify it and trying to justify God. And, and I think, you know, in doing some of these messages, that's what I've struggled with a little bit here. How do I defend God in this? How do I justify what God's doing? How do I prove to you that He's right and, and we're wrong? And, and, and how do I do that? And I, you know, I say things, I'm not sure I like the way that sounds. If I say it like that, that's going to come across so wrong. Maybe I can come up with a better and more satisfying explanation or interpretation of, of what we're understanding there. I can try to defend God. Because even in my humanity, I think, wait, is that fair? I try to defend God. There has to be a fairer way of seeing this, right? But then I was thinking, that's why it's called irresistible or effectual grace. Grace is not fair. Fair is that we get what we deserve. And, get, and God gets what he deserves. But God's grace turned that around. This grace that God gave us turned fair around, didn't it? Jesus got what we deserve. And we get what Jesus deserves. Grace is not fair. None of us deserved it. Nor will we ever. I don't need to defend God. Because praise God... Jesus defended me before his Father. So for God to work in us through his Spirit, to break down our stubbornness, is a gift. It's very good news, isn't it? The fact that I'm going to work against God and, and that I am not going to choose for him. Irresistible grace, effectual grace, unstoppable grace, whatever you want to call it, is very good news. But that didn't stop him. I want us to read that Ephesians scripture again. I know that we had read it not so long ago, but I want you to read it again, keeping in mind the fact that it's very good news. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, that's you and me, 
following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the things that I want to do, the things that, that work for me and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's who we were. That's how God found us. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we were long gone, the heart had stopped, there was no pulse. He made us alive, together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And further down, we read on and read on to verse 8. For the, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Praise God, because I wouldn't, I couldn't. It's a gift of God. Irresistible grace, unstoppable grace, effectual grace is an absolute gift. You and I were made alive. Amazing. Again, it's all God. It's not us. And so irresistible grace is essential. And the reason I put it here is because it follows our understanding of total depravity. If total depravity is not true, then irresistible grace is unnecessary. But if total depravity is true, then irresistible grace is essential. Because we, left to our own devices, are unable to respond to God's gracious call to salvation. So praise God that he broke through that. Praise God that he gave and he continues to extend a grace that is able to melt our hearts and draw us, you know, that, that draw us into his presence now already, not just pie in the sky and you die, now already, but also he'll bring us home for eternity. The doctrine of irresistible grace is a glorious truth that nothing can stand in the way of God's all-powerful love, not even the sinner himself. What's not to love about that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful and grateful for irresistible grace, for unstoppable grace, for a determined Father whose grace was able to break through all of our resistance, all of the ways that we worked against it, to draw us into the kingdom, to relentlessly draw us, turn that handle and bring us up to be with you. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for this truth. Lord, we, we thank you for, for taking it away from our own comprehension and understanding. Lord, thank you that you don't allow us to define you, but or to define salvation, or define grace, or to define even how it should work, but that you show us how it does work, that you rise above that, and you take control, and you reach right through our, our stubbornness, or our lack of understanding, with your amazing grace. God, we just want to pray that you would continue to show us how, how uh, rich that grace is, How much it cost you. It cost you your son Jesus and we're so grateful and thankful for that. And we just recognise that you did that for us. That we were dead, as Paul said. But you stepped in and made us alive. 
Lord, I pray that that would give us a sense of joy and a sense of excitement, a sense of understanding of the gift that we have within us. The gift that, that lives in us in you, Holy Spirit, as you live in us, that we would be revived again and again to that gift of grace. And we'd begin to live it out more and more. That we would continue calling people to surrender to God. That we continue preaching the gospel, the good news of salvation. Continue to plant the seeds in the lives of all that we meet. As you do your work in us and in all humanity. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for um, not being able to take credit for our own salvation at all. But it was all you. What a gift. In Jesus' name. Amen.